Pushkin. Nathaniel Rateliff was set up at NYC's Town Hall this past Thursday, ready to play another stop on a solo tour, when that show, like many right now, was canceled. Instead of packing it in and heading back to the hotel, Nathaniel played to an empty theater, streaming the show on Facebook. Making Do is a central thesis of his new release, and it's still all right. What makes you sad? What makes you blue? I'm all in rags with nothing to lose. Nathaniel has good reason to be optimistic, too. Despite some setbacks, he's been on a roll the last few years. With his band, The Night Sweats, he's been a standout at nearly every festival. Created his own line of cannabis with Willie Nelson called The Night Stash. And this summer, if all's normal again, he's supposed to be touring with Bob Dylan. His new album is a real departure from what he's become known for, though. It's his first release without his band, The Night Sweats, in seven years. And it sounds much closer to the music he started making more than 20 years ago. More introspective and folky. In this chat with Bruce Headlam, Nathaniel traces his musical lineage from his parents, who only allowed Christian music at home, to his work with Night Sweats producer and brilliant musician Richard Swift. Swift died from complications of alcoholism in 2018, and a lot of Nathaniel's new songs are dedicated to him. These songs are his way of making sense of his friend's death, of letting himself and his audience know that despite the sadness, it's still all right. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce and Nathaniel Rateliff from GSI Studios in New York. He starts by playing the album's title track. Go. 
line Spinning out again And it was cold outside And I hit the ground Said I could sleep here Forget all the fear Baby, it would take time to grow What if I don't know I hate a name Think about it Remembering all the times that you pointed out Said glass is clear But all this fear Well, starts at leaving a mark Idle hands All that stands From your time in the dark But it's still all right That was lovely. Thank Thanks, you. Man. You know, I think every guitarist should just have to watch your right hand. You've got such a... Where did you learn to finger pick? I mean, I've done... It's a weird, almost like claw hammer style. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think I just kind of... When I was younger, I used to do a lot of like sort of uh, Almond Brothers kind of... <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd switch in between um, using a pick and then like doing double stops. So I'd just like fold my pick in between my pointer and my middle finger. Oh, really? And then at some point, that started to turn into that mm-hmm. thing. And then, yeah, so. But you've got, I mean, your your bass notes, it's like a, like a train. But you've got the strum, and you, you're picking after the strum. It's really, it's doing a lot of work there. Thanks. You know, the other thing is I can't really Travis pick, which is essentially the same. The... Yeah, you can't? I can like fake it, but mm-hmm. not in the same. Yeah. I watch other people do it. I'm like, damn it. Why haven't I figured that out yet? But <laughs> uh, Well, that was fabulous. It just, it, there's just so much going on in that song. So tell me about the song you just played for us. Um, well, that's the title track. The record was going to have, you know, that was, that's the third title. The, originally, I was going to name it Rush On, but I thought that that was a little too heavy and being the title track. Um, the listeners would be drawn to listen to that first. Uh, and then I was going to name it All or Nothing because I was so excited about accomplishing writing that song because it was a little, the structure of it was a lot more, was a, a little more in depth than I'm used to like digging into. Um, uh, but then I was talking with a friend and like, you know, I, I'm surprised you didn't name this record and it's still all right because it kind of sums up the whole record. It, you know, it kind of, you're talking about loss and, um, and heartache and, but then trying to find joy, you know, like, um, and so that's, yeah, you know, I talk a lot about, um, it's like a, a conversation with myself and then also with other people uh, throughout the song, depending on which line it is, you know, so. People listening, a lot of them are going to know you from your work with Night Sweats. Right. Big, Brassy, soulful uh, songs like SOB and You Worry Me. But this is really kind of returning to what you started doing before the Night Sweats. Uh, yeah, I had probably 
10, maybe seven years, mm-hmm. seven years for sure of like, you know, just slumming it, you know, living, mm-hmm. living out of the van and trying to have a band with me. And I still, you know, a lot of the guys in the Night Sweats and this new project are from people who play with me from back in those days as mm-hmm. well. And you started, now your family, they were gospel singers, your mother and father. Yeah, my mom played in church uh, and my dad too. So it was a, kind of like a family band. But did you I, did you have siblings that played in it as well? Uh, my my sister uh, mm-hmm. Heather was two years older than me. She played piano and sang. And then you know sometimes it would just be like my mom and dad, uh, and then they would make me and my sister sing. So we'd have this like four part harmony. But it was certainly that era of like um, my mom and dad kind of came out of that like Jesus movement of the seventies and sixties. Mm-hmm. So more along the lines of like singer songwriter. Um, folky kind of stuff. My mom played 12 string. Cause I think some people okay. are like, when you think of gospel, you think of like the staple singers or even like the Oak Ridge boys or something. Yeah. 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 Or I, I just feel like some people think that it's like the scene from, uh, you know, the blues brothers where James Brown is the pastor, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like, especially when they think of the night sweats, I was like, no, nah. I was like, I, I listened to all that on my own. My mom did something <laughs> totally different, but it was a good upbringing. Um, Musically, you know, at least I had a great home for, and lots of encouragement to 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 play and to listen to music. You know, mm-hmm. like my my dad and mom were always excited to like introduce something new to me. So, really, in secular music as well. <clears throat> Not at first, but the, after my dad passed away, my mom sort of lightened up on the secular music. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my dad, you know. Uh, Unbeknownst to me, I had this like collection of secular music in the closet of all his old records, and so no. um, I was able to like kind of go through that. And after he passed away, it also felt made me feel like I had some sort of connection to him through those records. So, so before he passed, you found the records, or did you find them afterwards? After he started to lighten up a little bit too, before he passed away, um, you know, because they 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 had some pretty. Uh, they were very young when they joined the church and had a lot of traumatic stuff happen in their lives that led them into that. And so as they started to get into their 30s, they started to lighten up a little bit, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Do you remember the first record you found? Um, I, yeah, I remember finding, like, Muddy Waters' um, folk singer and Muddy Waters sings Big Bill Brunsey. And uh-huh. then, like, some of the other stuff, it was like— um, there's some moody blues in there, um, <laughs> you know, some unexpected stuff because yeah. that was that era of music he listened to. But also my dad just started to be a little more comfortable about listening to the radio. And I remember like Bob Dylan coming on and just like having my mind blown or hearing Imagine for the first time and wondering why, like, you know, I asked my parents, I was like, well, if, you know, if God created music, how come our songs in church aren't better than this song that John Lennon wrote? You know, like, <laughs> okay, that is blasphemous now. If yeah, you're... <laughs> I know. Well, and you know, there was that whole idea. There was a humanist song, humanistic song. Mm-hmm. I was like, but we're humans. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. This, the the, the no question. heaven line has got to be, that's got to be a little trouble in that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, you know what you have to do then? I'm sorry, what was your father's name? Uh, everybody called him Bud, but his real name was Cecil Clement. Oh, that's a great name. Yeah, uh, he hated it, but I think it was great. <laughs> okay, yeah. It, you've got to put the Cecil Clement uh, Ray Liff, um list on Spotify, all the records you found. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was a huge Van Morrison fan, too. So, oh, okay. That which is see. like the early Van, you know, like, I think, you know, it 
that really changed me a lot because I, I, my mom listened to it a lot as well. So, you know, it was a lot of moon dance. And then on my own, I found like Astro Weeks and the Bang Sessions and, mm-hmm. you know, like, okay. there's a lot of great stuff there. So After he died, did she change what she listened to? Yeah, she kind of, like, she joined like a CD, <laughs> like, I don't know which which one of those companies it was, but like got a bunch of stuff like Almond Brothers and um, the band. I stole her like the best of the band CD, which was like my introduction. You know, I always thought is it you know like when you go to a record store and people are like oh the best of, but like the best of Bob Dylan and the band like that was like kind of my introduction to that stuff mm-hmm. and like it it sparked my curiosity and then I like became a record collector and like started, you know, thumbing through everything I could get my hands on and, you know, and was lucky enough to, like, find people who had, like, original bootlegs of the basement tapes. And mm-hmm. and that stuff really, like, just kind of changed my life. And those are records that are huge parts of my life now. Yeah. Do you remember, um, do you remember any of the gospel songs you, you sang? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's like a... It's like a, a bad radio station in my head, really. So. Oh, okay. What were they? Just just a title or two. So oh, we'll get like the As the Deer is one of the, I think is one of the names. Um, Lord, I Lift Your Name on High. I mean, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Wow. And my mom, actually, she wrote her own songs, too. So. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and like her own religious songs, and still does. Um, and I guess that's one of those things I'd always love to do for her someday. She's always wanted to make a record, so. Wow. Do you ever, have you ever played one of her songs on stage? I haven't, no. It's, for me, it's like, a, you know, I feel so far removed from the religious side of things that mm-hmm. um, I don't want to encourage anyone to move that way. <laughs> <laughs> With the power of your voice, you will. Yeah, exactly. Convert millions, millions of people. Yeah. That's the, the conversion is the problem I had. I think that's why I kind of. Mm-hmm moved away from it because I was doing some work with the Hopi Native Americans. And um, I was there on an Easter Sunday, and I remember just feeling just embarrassed to be a Christian and to be, like, trying to force or, you know, just trying to, like, minister to people whose beliefs had been around so much longer historically than even mm-hmm. Christianity had been around. And that was, really made me question what we were doing. And Was this in Colorado? Yeah. No, that was in um, the Hopi uh, Reservation, which is um, in the center of the Navajo Reservation, which is, we came in through Flagstaff, and I believe it's in Nevada. Mm-hmm. So were you doing, like, mission work? Yeah, I was, um, which I, you know, ended up not, you know, I was only, I was a really, I was only 18 or 17 or 18, so it's hard to uh, be accountable for your decisions at that age, you know, like. I was certainly still kid. learning, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, one of my uncles was a minister on a, yeah. on a reservation, as we called them in Canada. And it was always very, uh, it's a strange. Yeah, when you say conversion, that's the thing that's a dangerous word, I feel like. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like some of the other things we did. We worked a lot with uh, just like feeding homeless people and um, and talking to them like they're really people. Um, and I loved being a part of the Hopi community when I was there and learning about their culture, but I was more interested in learning about their culture than trying to point out what was, what, yeah. you know, try to find something wrong with it. You know, yeah. I was, I love your culture now drop it. Yeah, exactly. And I think that was, you know, like, um, 
that was, you know, the core of Western expansion, you know. Yeah. Well, not even I love your culture, but just like we eliminate it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Along with, and we like your land. Yeah, we yeah. love your land. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we like that too. Uh, there's a lot of religious language or at least religious imagery in some of your songs uh, in Expecting to Lose, you know, right. slide about standing in the water. Uh, when you write those, are you are you conscious that that's that it comes from that tradition, or is it just is it just a language you know? Um, it's a language I know, and it's something I always loved about Leonard Cohen's songs. Like he was a Buddhist, but was you know loved the religion he was born into. And but if you listen to his songs, it was like they could be so sensual, but have these like references to. Um, biblical verse and since it's you know such a common <clears throat> i guess that language is so common or so well known at least at one point i feel like it's something people can relate to in, in a way mm-hmm. like you know even like the stand in the water um the reference of being baptized or something like that we can like if you remove the religious aspect of it you can still have this cleansing idea, you know, um, mm-hmm. that comes along with it. But it, it, I feel like it's a nice reference. It's a nice way to, it's nice vernacular, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back with more from Nathaniel Rateliff after the break. Marijuana, motorcycles, and mayhem. Deep Cover is a true story. It begins with an FBI agent going undercover in a biker gang. And it ends with, well, a war, a full-scale U.S. invasion. I'm Jake Halpern. I'm a journalist. And for this story, I've been to dive bars, horse farms, backwater swamps. I've talked to FBI agents, pirate reenactors, and a bunch of big-time drug smugglers. Listen to Deep Cover now in your favorite podcast app or at deepcoverpod.com. Brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Hi, this is Hari Kunzru. I want to tell you about my new podcast, Into the Zone. It's a show about opposites and how borders are never as clear as we think. I go from Berlin to Paris, from Ojai to Charlottesville, looking for the grey areas between life and death, east and west, black and white. I meet philosophers and punk musicians new age gurus and space explorers and they give me new insights into some of the biggest issues of the day issues like immigration and privacy and cultural appropriation not to mention whether there's life on the moon join me for a journey into the borderlands where one thing turns into its opposite listen to into the zone from pushkin industries wherever you get your podcasts we're back with Bruce and Nathaniel Rateliff. So tell me about uh, Richard Swift, who was yeah. who was uh, a collaborator of yours and a producer on Night Sweats. Yeah, I, I'd met him years ago uh, in London. Was opening for Delta Spirit, and Matt Vasquez was a good buddy, and he loved Richard Swift stuff. And that's when I was first introduced to him. But then it kind of took a while for us to circle back to each other, and I had. They sent him just randomly sent him demos uh, through the advice of a friend um, of the stuff I was doing in my attic just by myself, which eventually became the Night Sweats. 
he really liked it and wanted to make a record. And then I ended up having a record deal, and my A and R guy suggested I work with him. And I was like, "Well, we've already decided we wanted to work together." So, mm-hmm. um, so I went out to Cottage Grove, Oregon, which is just south of Eugene, where Richard had a studio by myself at first, um, and just had a, a huge batch of songs. And we just kind of started working, you know, like mostly with one mic in the room. But it was like an instant. Uh, I don't know. We just had like a kindred spirit, you know. And I know if you talk to anybody that knew Richard, he would, they would probably all say that they felt like he made them feel very special, you know. How did you build those songs? And I don't want to talk about Night Sweats uh, songs, but were you always hearing those arrangements in your head when you were writing? I mean, I, I tend to have that with a lot of songs that I write is hearing these other voicings. Um, other instruments, and that's kind of part of the fun process. You know, once you get past the chords and the words and melodies, um, is filling in all those gaps and like figuring out what those other sounds are. Or, you know, because sometimes you'll be like, "Oh, and horns would be great here," and then you try it and you're like, "That's not that's not the sound that I'm hearing in my head." So you keep searching. So I did that. You know, I kind of had a lot of that with Richard, and even like with the demos, because um, some of that material ended up being, you know, uh, like songs like You Need Me uh, was one that I had written um, maybe around that first Night Sweats record, somewhere in there, but just never had a home. It it reminds me, I mean, maybe it's a lack of imagination on my part, but musicians who can uh, think of just, you know, without another group of musicians in the room, who who can think of those kind of arrangements for some songs... Um, reminds me a little of Graham Parker was like that when he started in England. Right. He was this pub rocker, and then he went in, and they did a whole. He was like this rhythm and blues guy, and I always right. thought, "Wow, how does somebody do that?" Um, and then turn around and write like you, acoustic songs. And, right. and what well, there was a nice thing about working with Richard too, because I I would I would always have these, you know, like like I said from the start of the song, there's always these other voicings you hear these other sounds or instrumentation that you want but that was really the thing that Richard was so good at is like uh, even if I had those ideas sometimes he would be like no we're not going to do that (laughs) which can be kind of you know um, you can get your feelings hurt but you kind of have to like let go of that Mm -hmm. and and know that like just try to stay out of the way of the song you know Mm -hmm. and trust that somebody like Richard was trying to make the song the best it can be. But he would always have that just these like incredible ideas to make a mediocre song be a great song, you yeah. know. Um, and sometimes that was eliminating some of those voices and instrumentation that I thought made the song what it was. So, you know, yeah. Wow. Did he do the first Night Sweats album? I did the or? first and second one. And the second one, mm-hmm. Okay. And then, and then even the EP we did, he ended up like uh, he mixed, and um, I think he added a couple of things to it as well. So yeah, yeah. And then sadly, he's gone. And he passed away. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, at forty-one. So wow. pretty, pretty did, young. Did you see him before he? I saw him as soon as I heard he was in the hospital. I flew out there. I just kind of stopped everything. Yeah. And um, wanted to be there to. I, I just wanted to know what was happening. You know, I just knew he was really sick, and then. Um. Yeah, and then, and then he pretty quickly went. In, I I was there for a day, and then left, and then he quickly went into hospice, and I went back again. 
you know, to just like, I don't know, I wanted to shake him and like, you know, I wanted him to be coherent and I wanted to talk to him and like, you know, try to make him fight for, for something, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. but he wasn't really, I wasn't really coherent by the time I got there, so. Are there particular songs written in this album about him? Yeah, you know, and it's still all right. There's moments uh, that it's, you know, there's moments where I'm talking about him. Rush On in particular is only just, is just for specifically Richard and kind of talking to him and sort of about him and that like, and I guess, you know, a lot of the album kind of deals with the same thing that Richard and I shared or, or, um, I guess it's the thing that we all share is this like un, unspeakable or undescribable brokenness that I don't think we allow ourselves to be to be vulnerable enough to talk about to everyone. And I just I just kind of question whether you know if we allow ourselves to be able to to vocalize those things and to realize that we all share that sort of similar um, aching that maybe it wouldn't be as heavy. So I guess like songs like Rush On, I'm really talking about recognizing that in him, but I recognize it in myself as well. Okay. Do you want to play another song? Sure. I'll do a little upbeat one, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> this one's all or nothing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so this one in particular, yeah, it's not very heavy. Uh, but I remember I, I played it for Richard, and it had taken me a long time to kind of figure out the chord progression. Um, but he was like, man, you can't be too Nielsen. So when we did the record, we really tried to um, make the arrangement and the production on it a little more like, you know, a little touch of Schmielsen in the night. You, know, you, guess, you guys so. love Harry Nielsen. We both did, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So here we go. Is that thunder or the 
since that someone calls your name well, one back from you all the hours did I coward while you corrected everything I'd say Too much pain and doubt In one little space We got all this And nothing to I'd carry you anywhere You want me to go You think I know this But I, I never do Sometimes you're just too tired to make it home I don't come back and please don't lie to me I don't say it's all or nothing, baby I don't come back and please don't lie to me I don't say it's all or nothing, baby I don't come back and please don't lie to me Oh, please don't say it's all or nothing, oh, baby. Oh, yeah. We'll be right back after a quick break. Hey there, I'm Ashley Ford, host of the Chronicles of Now podcast. Chronicles of Now commissions amazing authors like Roxane Gay, Colin McCann, Carmen Maria Machado, and Curtis Sittenfield to write short fiction inspired by the headlines. Each episode features a new work of fiction inspired by the biggest stories of our time, like what does COVID-19 do to our relationships? How do we make sense of climate change and extinction? And perhaps most mysteriously, what is going on with Trump's tweets? Because in such uncertain times, sometimes art, fiction, is the only way to make sense of it all. The show is great for fans of short speculative fiction, historical novels, podcasts that go behind the news, and narrative shows like Radiolab and The Moth. The Chronicles of Now is imaginative storytelling at its most compelling. Authors helping us understand our world. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Brought to you by Pushkin Industries. We're back with more from Nathaniel Rateliff. When did you know you had this voice? Because uh, you, you do a lot of things in that song, and I mean, right. over your career, 
I mean, you can sing in a lot of different ways. Um, it took me a while to be comfortable with it, and even or like since my start of a solo career until now, I feel like I've learned so much. Mm-hmm. And part of that process is learning how to be comfortable um, in your voice. How did you do that? I mimicked things for a long time just out of curiosity to see if my voice could do it or like try to understand it. And like, and I guess this is the kind of thing that I think people take lessons for. I was just, I don't know if I just didn't have anything else to do <laughs> or what, but I mean, I was working the whole time. So, um, yeah, we should mention that as well as being a working musician, you always had a job. You, oh yeah, all sorts of crappy ones too. So, well, but you, you know, like, like when you're a janitor, yeah, you were a janitor. <laughs> I was a janitor when I was 16 for a high school, and I, when I didn't go to high school, so you didn't go to high school. No, but my the last janitor. year of school was seventh grade. So, <clears throat> so then I ended up being like a janitor and groundskeeper, and it was kind of embarrassing, you know. Like, was, was that the school you would have gone to? Was it the mm-hmm. local school? Yeah. Wow. Um, I lived tough. in that town, so I should have been going to school there. But then I was like. During the school year, cleaning, either cutting grass there or or, or cleaning the rooms, at, mm-hmm. you know, like sort of a swing shift. But I would always sing. I just kind of, I started to love singing because I love music. And when I was younger, I was really embarrassed of it. But, you know, as I kind of grew out of the church singing into, you know, everything from trying to sing like the Everly Brothers and listen to their harmonies to like um, how Nat King Cole and um, Sam Cooke, how they uh, how they enunciated their words and how they shaped their words, mm-hmm. uh, and even into like the early, you know, James Brown, the Fabulous Flames, like the, the his voice then, where he was more of a crooner versus like the funk days. I, I just love the characteristics and all of that, and you know, and so it was like how you know, like just try to sing like that, you know, like I guess you know, mm. uh, you had good teachers. I. Yeah, 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 I guess so. Those guys were great teachers. Uh, but you also do something that a lot of people don't do so much anymore, um, which is you use almost different voices. I mean, James Brown did do that, but a lot of singers now, I think, feel that I must use my authentic voice, and that's the voice they use for everything. You're, you'll belt, you'll whisper, you'll do a lot of different things with your voice. I mean, those are all my voice too. I mean, I well, yeah, I, know. I think I think at a, at a time I struggled with the identity of what my voice was, mm-hmm. you know, and would, tr- like, on some of the earlier records, I felt like I would stay in, you know, in, like, like in memory of loss, I feel like my voice is kind of restrained because I'm not taking on different characteristics that I thought mm-hmm. the song needed, you know, or, like, songs like All or Nothing, is like the song I just did is totally different than the other one, but I didn't feel like I was singing in a character when I wrote it. It seemed like, that voice was appropriate for that song. Mm-hmm. And so I try to listen to that, like like shape my voice to what the song requires. Did you have the songs going in, or were a lot of them worked out in the studio? I had most of them already demoed, and except for uh, All or Nothing, or sorry, All or Nothing was mostly done, but and it's still all right. I wrote one morning, like I had a, a loose sketch of it, and... It's kind of like multiple processes of how I wrote that one, but then just finished it one morning um, before going to the studio and then recorded it that day, So, wow. which is a great feeling to like write something and then have it recorded in a matter of hours. And like this is like a real release, you know. So 
I guess for someone who wrote songs while being a gardener and yeah. working at a truck depot and all of that, yeah. Uh, writing on the road, you know, musicians complain about it. For you, that's like. Well, it's still it's still hard for me because there's no personal space on the road, you know. Mm. Um, and there's also when you you know you have seven other goofballs you're hanging out with. There's this energy that consumes a lot of your time, which is you just like you know we're we're all really close friends and we all want to hang out and especially even like our crew, like you know some of the guys we've been touring with since we were in a van together and now you know we have these big productions and their days are mm-hmm. really long so at some point you know when you have a day off you're like well what are we going to do together it's not usually i'm going to sit in this room and write all day yeah. it's usually like i'm gonna pour my heart out i don't know can we have like like go to a water park or do something crazy today you know and like all have fun together and <laughs> and so it um <clears throat> but really i'd like to see you and the crew at a water park that could be your oh next side God, project yeah it is a pretty good time yeah it's just aren't you supposed to have kids for that like with you no, or no, no you can just yeah. go just like a bunch of like slightly intoxic intoxicated adults yeah yeah in okay a water park yeah all right <laughs> <laughs> uh so you went in this album has uh it's got a really beautiful sound thank you it's a lot um i don't know how deliberate it was it's a it's at times, a very 50s sound. It sounds like a lot of reverb. Am I right? Yeah. Or, uh, I mean, you know, we kind of try to follow the lines that, um, you know, as we worked with Richard, he would always, um, like, even the first record, like, we would make records for next to nothing with him. So I'd still have a record budget. And then I he would just be like, man, use that and invest it back into, like, your home recording space. And, like, mm-hmm. here's the gear you need, which... It basically set me up with everything that he had, you know. Um, I think out of just laziness, not out of helpfulness, because we were planning on working together a lot, and so he wouldn't want to, like, come over and have the same setup, yeah. you know. He's like, well, if I'm not going to work in my spot, at least your place has all the same stuff. Yeah. So, um, so we ended up with a lot of that kind of sounding stuff. I have, like, a AKG BX20 reverb, which is sort of like the... Like, we ran the strings through that, and I, they used that for Frank Sinatra's voice on certain things, and it's just mm-hmm. really rich. And uh, the BX-15 or 10 and a 25. Um, and so those are all analog reverb units that aren't plate reverbs. Um, mm-hmm. But I love that sound. It's it's hard so, to— So how do they work if it's not a plate? Is it— This actually has a giant coil in it. Like, mm-hmm. the BX-20 has a coil that's, like, four foot. Wow. Um yeah, they're they're a real pain if they break. There's really no one to fix them anymore that I know of. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, it, um, so essentially, it sends a signal through this giant spring, and then back out the other side. Wow. Um, but yeah, it it's hard to go. Yeah. I think with the twenty, you actually have to use like an effects loop and like be able to control it because the mm-hmm. there's I no should, way to reduce it. It's just like all verb or none. So yeah. yeah. By the way, we're in a studio here, and I can see all the guys in the booth. They're all on eBay now, seeing if there's old uh, oh, good luck smoke coils. Those, yeah, is there, good uh, luck finding the BX-15 or 10. Yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, there's a lot of fakes out there, so be careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other side of the album, uh, and they're not going to hear it here, but I hope everybody gets this album and listens, is there's a lot of, uh, lot of voice, a lot of like choral right. uh, voicings in it. 
um, which I'm assuming you brought in people to do that. That's not well. Like tonight, number two is just me and Patrick. Oh, is that right? Doing all. I know everybody's like, "Oh, you got a choir here." I was like, "No, there's two of us." Yeah, I'm just actually just keep layering it, doing different harmonies on top of each other. Mm-hmm. First, at first, doing it one on one, and then just like standing in the studio with four twenty ones, like singing into them while we're listening to the playback together. So wow. Well, it sounds great. Thank you. And you've got a lot of strings. And I think you're touring with strings, right? Yeah, we have a quartet with us. We we did like one night where we did three songs, and we brought in like a, I think it was nine or ten strings players. And it's like, it was kind of like the, I just finished the studio at my house, and I was like, well, this is definitely the test of what we can do in here. And we ended up pulling it off and getting the songs done. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So. Yeah, those uh, musicians' unions. You're paying a lot of money for those yeah. guys. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of, like, Mellotron strings. Um, I feel like that was um, one of Richard's secret weapons, too. Um, the modern Mellotrons are pretty nice. I don't know. It worked for the Beatles and the Beach Boys, so I don't know why it wouldn't work now, you mm-hmm. know. So, yeah. And But it's got a nice—it gives the album this very nice late 60s folk right on. records. Remember, it was, it was usually— the not very good folk artists who suddenly had like symphony orchestras behind them. Right. I uh, mean, even. But the, this is really beautiful. The Five Leaves Left record, uh, Nick Drake has like tons of orchestration on oh, it too. Yeah. But like, you know, even uh, like Leonard Cohen's songs of Leonard Cohen, like there's some orchestration on there, but then there's these just arrangements of like really weird sounding instruments that like float in for a minute and then they're gone. I've always mm-hmm. loved that stuff, though. Yeah, like, he, he uses a, a jaws harp on, uh, mm-hmm. I can't remember which song, but it's all of a sudden you're like, is this a joke song? Because you hear the twang, twang yeah. in the background. <laughs> and then it just kind of fades out. Yeah. Could we coax you into one more song? I'm going to do Kissing Our Friends. Glad I didn't do this in the studio. It only took me one take yeah. <laughs> on the record. <laughs> Stiffness would never leave. They say that winter time is coming, but it sure hurts my hands. Around the water for your bears, but you never came in. Start kissing all of our friends 
lonely Remember we both still care And all of our friends You and I ain't getting too lonely Remember we both still care guitar did very well you were good too but the guitar did nicely <laughs> it, it helped in thank, there a little bit thanks yeah. so much for coming in my pleasure. you know thanks i hope we me. play this and i hope people at your church are like how did we lose that guy uh, we gotta um, get him back <laughs> <laughs> it's not happening yeah <laughs> well they can dream thanks to nathaniel rateliff for stopping by to talk to bruce and for playing songs from his new record you can hear his new album, and it's still all right, wherever you get your music. And check out our favorite Nathaniel Rateliff songs at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Plus, Nathaniel's put a few of his own favorite songs on the list as well. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Mila Bell, Leah Rose, Matt Laboza, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Candy Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>